The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Barron's Live, our daily webcast and podcast. I'm Lauren Foster, a senior writer at Barron's. Thanks so much for joining us today. You know, as we've all seen in the headlines, lots of offices are empty, interest rates are high and poised to go higher, inflation remains elevated and rents are up, so not good for tenants, but great for landlords. So what does this all mean for investors? Is now a good time to invest in real estate? Well, to answer those questions and more, it is my pleasure to have Janet Souk, Managing Director at Clarion Partners and Portfolio Manager of the $700 million Clarion Real Estate Income Fund here today. Janet, welcome. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you, Lauren. Appreciate uh, you inviting me and it's good to be here. So, you know, with mortgage rates uh, high, offices empty, as we just heard, you know, many investors are weary of real estate. You know, in the backdrop, you've also got inflation, recession prospects, you know, supply, demand and balances to contend with. So with all that in mind, why do you think investors should consider adding private real estate to their portfolios? Sure. So there are many benefits to adding private real estate to a traditional 60-40 portfolio. Uh, And what we've seen, institutional investors have realized this and have been allocating more and more to real estate over the years. Uh, We've been managing capital for institutional clients for 40 plus years, and our current institutional investor base continues to increase allocations to the real estate asset class with current allocations uh, right around 10%. And now you're seeing more individual investors realizing the benefits as well. Uh, So adding 10% private real estate to a more traditional stock bond portfolio has shown to increase returns and lower risk. So if you think about the efficient frontier uh, for you economists out there, adding just 10% private real estate moves you up, getting you higher returns, and to the left, lowering your risk versus, again, that traditional 60-40 portfolio. Now, that in and of itself is a pretty compelling reason. Um, But in addition to that, private real estate also offers strong income better than the other asset classes. Uh, In fact, the main core real estate benchmark used by institutional investors to track performance uh, has seen a 4.4% income yield over the past 10 years, which is significantly higher than stocks, bonds, and publicly traded REITs. Uh, Private real estate is also a strong inflation hedge, which is top of mind for most folks uh, recently, as you're typically able to raise rents with inflation. Uh, And then private real estate also uh, offers lower volatility than other asset classes. Uh, In fact, over the last 10 years, private real estate has had only three negative quarters of returns. Uh, By comparison, publicly traded REITs have had 13 Bonds have had 12 and stocks have had seven negative quarters of returns. Um, And I guess along with the last point, 
um, on volatility, uh, private real estate also provides good diversification since its correlation to other asset classes is so low. Well, that's a lot of compelling reasons, you know, income, inflation hedge, low volatility, diversification. So, you know, investors have a lot of options when it uh, comes to getting into real estate. You can just go out and buy real estate yourself. You could also go into publicly traded REITs or, or low cost ETFs. So a two part question for you. I guess the first question is, you know, why buy real estate from Clarion? And then a second question, and this actually came in also earlier from Michael, the question of private versus public, um, the benefits of private real estate as opposed to a publicly traded REIT, for example. So let's tackle the first question, um, the first part, uh, why Clarion? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so why invest with Clarion? And maybe backing up a little bit for those of you not as familiar with who Clarion Partners is, um, I'll start there. So Clarion Partners is one of the largest real estate investment managers in the U.S. We've been around for 40 plus years now. Uh, we currently have about 82 billion in assets under management across about 1,500 properties. Uh, we invest across all major property types and across the investment spectrum. So everything from core to value add to opportunistic investing. Um, we are a pure play real estate investment management firm. So we do one thing and one thing only, and that is invest in real estate on behalf of our investors. So everyone at the firm really has the same goal. Um, we're also a partnership structure. So most of the senior members of the firm, including myself, uh, are invested both in the firm as well as in the firm's products. So there's strong alignment of interests there. So that's a little bit about uh, who Clarion is and kind of some of our competitive advantages before we go specifically into the fund um, that I manage. Uh, to address the second part of your question, so investing in private real estate is very different from investing in publicly traded REITs. Uh, we talked a bit about this uh, in your earlier question, Lauren, but private real estate actually has pretty low correlation to publicly traded REITs. And publicly traded REITs uh, actually typically trade more like a small cap stock um, and therefore largely tracks the stock, the stock market. Um, whereas private real estate is valued really based on the fundamentals of the underlying real estate. Um, and if you're investing in private real estate, you also have a lot of choices out there kind of circling back to uh, why it's more important to really make sure you're investing with the right fund manager who does have experience investing in the different types of real estate and through different cycles. Okay. And can I just ask, a, I guess, a follow-up question? I'm also curious about how the fund, and for those who are out there and want to look it up, it's uh, the ticker is C-P-R-E-X. And again, that's the Clarion Partners Real Estate Income Fund, ticker C-P-R-X. How is it different, in, I guess, the approach uh, from some of the big non-traded REITs that are out there? Yeah, ab absolutely. Great question. Um, so fundamentally, Clarion Partners Real Estate Income Fund, or C-P-R-E-X, as we refer to it for short, which is its ticker symbol, um, is a fund designed to provide individual investors access to institutional quality private real estate. So we focus on both current income as well as long-term appreciation. And we do this by investing in high quality, well-leased buildings with a strong income component. Um, essentially, we're offering Clarion's institutional platform, uh, which we just discussed, which was previously reserved for really the world's largest sovereign wealth funds and pension funds, 
to individual investors and financial advisors who really should have access, we believe, to high quality private real estate. And we're doing that in a format that was designed to be as easy to use and as transparent as possible. Uh, so we created a simple 1940 Act fund, which is a bit different from more of your traditional non-traded REITs in the space that many of you may, may be familiar with. Um, and we think of this 1940 Act structure as really next-gen fund structure. Um, so we offer low investment minimums starting at $2,500, simple 1099 tax reporting. We have daily purchasing so investors can really come into the fund at any time. Uh, and we have daily valuations reflected through uh, that daily share price. Um, a few differentiating factors I, I really want to focus on here and kind of what makes us really different than the non-traded REITs in the space. Um, so first, this was designed to be easy to trade. Uh, you can purchase this via ticker symbol, avoiding cumbersome paperwork, uh, depending on which platform you work with. Uh, two, we offer a low all-inclusive fee structure comprised of 125 basis point asset management fee with no performance fee and no hidden fees. It's something I really want to focus on here. Fundamentally, we don't think uh, that type of incentive fee belongs with this type of product. We don't charge an incentive fee for our core institutional funds, and we treat this fund exactly the same way. Uh, and we believe our simple fee structure best aligns our interests with our investors and keeps our focus really on core high quality income producing investments. Um, and this structure, with this structure, all excess uh, return really goes into investors' uh, pockets at the end of the day versus ours. Um, three, we also utilize less leverage than most of our competitors in the non-traded REIT space. Uh, Clarion generally tends to be more conservative with our use of leverage. Um, and on top of that, because we're a 1940 Act Fund, there's actually specific limitations on the amount of leverage we're allowed to use versus the other non-traded REITs. Um, and with less leverage, investors are exposed to less volatility. Um, and last point I want to highlight here is our fair and transparent valuation policy. Um, because this is a product that trades on a daily basis, the valuation process is extremely important to us. And we have created what we believe is the most robust valuation policy in the industry. We have every property within the portfolio valued by a third-party valuation specialist on a monthly basis and adjusted on a daily basis for income uh, in order to pass the fair value of each asset through to our investors via the daily share price. So investors know they're always purchasing at NAV at the true value of the underlying assets. Thanks, Janet. I want to hear more uh, about where you're finding opportunities and areas that you're perhaps avoiding. But before I do, a quick reminder to the audience that if you have questions for Janet, please submit them in the Q&A feature. I'll leave some time at the end uh, for audience Q&A. So, Janet, you know, commercial real estate is a very broad umbrella and it's distinct from residential real estate. So when we're talking about investing in real estate, um, what are the sectors that you're actually talking about? Yes. So private real estate is definitely a pretty broad category. I'd say real estate investment is a broad category. Within that, there's the private real estate side. And then the other side that people typically think of is publicly traded REITs, um, which we discussed earlier and we do not invest in as a firm. 
um, or as a fund. We focus really on only private real estate investing. That's our area of expertise. Um, and then within private real estate investing, as you mentioned, Lauren, there are a lot of different sectors. Um, there's what we like to call the four major food groups, uh, which is where Clarion has traditionally invested in. So those are multifamily housing, industrial warehouse, office, and retail. And then you have your alternative sectors, which include things like self-storage, medical office, and life sciences. Um, I think, you know, as we're talking through the different sectors, because it is, again, such a broad category in real estate investing, I think more important now than ever to really distinguish between the different sectors, right? So today, mm -hmm. some of them have really strong fundamentals, and some of them not so strong fundamentals. Um, and when people think about investing in private real estate, I think we often tend to think about the physical buildings themselves and then the cash flows behind them. And while that's obviously a huge part of how we assess private real estate, um, you know, what we're really looking at when we make these bigger picture investment decisions and figure out which sectors we want to really focus on at any given point in time, it's really about predicting how and where people will live, work, and play at the end of the day, right? So mm -hmm. where they're moving, where are they working, are they going into the office or are they not? Where are they spending their money? Are they eating out? Are they eating at home? Are they shopping at stores? Are they shopping online? All of that really drives our decision-making in terms of which sectors we're focused on. Um, so a lot of what we do is not just around the physical buildings and the cash flows, which people sort of tend to think about when they think of real estate investing, but really predicting uh, human behavior. And that really is what drives our conviction in, in some of the sectors over others. So let's start then with, with, with those sectors that, that have what you call the strong fundamentals. And I believe you have three uh, high conviction sectors. That's industrial warehouse, multifamily and life sciences. Let's start with industrial warehouses. Uh, why do you like the sector? What are some of those trends that are driving this long-term outlook? Yeah, so starting with industrial warehouse, this has been the best performing asset class and we're expecting to continue to be as e-commerce continues to grow. Uh, we as the firm made the strategic decision to overweight the industrial warehouse sector probably 12 plus years ago, um, and certainly years before many of our competitors did, seeing the larger themes of e-commerce taking over traditional retail, resulting in the strong industrial warehouse demand that we've been experiencing uh, over the years. And we're expecting that growth to continue. Uh, a couple of reasons why I'll outline. So we're projecting e-commerce sales to continue to grow, um, albeit at a bit of a slower pace than the recent years. Um, recent years, you know, were, were definitely accelerated by COVID. Um, we're also expecting increased demand as companies change their inventory management. So a lot of companies we've seen change from a just-in-time to a just-in-case inventory model. A lot of the companies over the past few years experienced lost sales due to supply chain issues that we saw during COVID. They realized they didn't have enough inventory, so realized that they needed to stock more inventory and therefore move from a just-in-time to a just-in-case uh, inventory model. And all of that creates additional warehouse demand, which is great news for us. 
Um, and then last point on industrial, rents still make such a tiny portion of a typical company's overall logistics spend. So rents are still typically somewhere between three to 7% uh, with transportation and labor really making up the vast majority. That's typically somewhere between 50 to 70%. Uh, so we think there's still a lot of room to grow on the industrial warehouse side. So this year, there's been a lot of talk about you know, artificial intelligence and data centers. And I'm wondering if uh, data centers are, are a separate category or if they're sort of a subset of industrial warehouses and whether you have any exposure to data centers. Sure, absolutely. So typically we view, and I think the industry tends to view data centers as more of a separate category versus being part of the industrial warehouse sector. Um, we have looked at data centers. We as a firm have not necessarily had a ton of experience with them. Um, you know, they are very, very capital intensive. They're very specific in terms of how you need to run them. So I think partnering with the right partner that really has that um boots on the ground experience and running data centers is very important. I think data centers and demand for data centers is probably going to continue to grow, as you said, Lauren, with the continued uh, advancement of technology and AI, um, but not necessarily one of our areas as a firm that we uh, consider ourselves experts in. Okay, so one of the areas that you, you do own is uh, multifamily properties. So tell us a bit about what constitutes a multifamily property and what I guess the underlying trends are there. Yeah, absolutely. So when folks think about residential real estate, right, there's sort of the, the for sale side and then there's the rental property side. So when we talk about multifamily housing um, as a firm and the investments we have in the fund, typically we're talking about rental residential housing, and that's typically what Clarion acquires are usually the larger uh, rental housing pro properties and typically in kind of your major and secondary cities. Um, we have had a bullish outlook on this sector for many years, uh, similar to industrial, and we have our, our investment research te team to thank for that. Um, you know, they're the ones that really track these high level trends. And we'll talk about reasons why we're, we still continue to be bullish on the sector as well. Um, so a lot of the fundamentals due to demographic and lifestyle preferences and the rising cost of home ownership led us to have a bullish outlook on the sector many years ago. So you have a wave of millennials and Gen Zers continuing to enter prime renter age. Uh, and this cohort of millennials and Gen Zers is much larger than the Gen X and baby boomer cohort. Um, and they also have very different lifestyle preferences. They tend to prefer renting uh, and the flexibility that comes with renting versus being committed to buying a home and, you know, being in one spot um, for too long. There's also significant pent up demand in the system um, from a lot of these Gen Zers that are still living with their parents. We probably all know somebody that moved in with their parents during COVID. Um, a lot of them are still living in their parents' basements, attics, et cetera. And eventually we expect them to start moving out and forming households of their own, um, mostly renting apartments. Uh, there's also a huge housing affordability issue um, in this country right now. Again, we probably all know somebody that's trying to buy a house. I definitely have friends that have been trying to buy a house for, for many years now and continue, continuously get priced out of the market. I definitely do not envy the position they're in right now. 
And with mortgage rates at the highest level we've seen in many years, uh, we expect the affordability issue to continue. Um, and that all leads to increased demand on the rental housing side. Um, and then last, we also have a massive undersupply of both for sale and rental housing in this country right now. Uh, we project we project that the U.S. needs somewhere between another three to five million units of additional housing to keep up with the current demand. Um, so for all those reasons, we have been very bullish and we continue to have strong conviction uh, in the multifamily housing sector. Great. And then I guess the, the third leg of the stool, um, life sciences. I'm very curious about that and whether it relates to biotech or, or what are the trends there? Yeah, absolutely. So life sciences is one of our favorite sectors. Um, and I would say one that really gives us a competitive advantage. A lot of the other uh, competitive funds in the space, I think, have been focused on industrial warehouse and have been focused on uh, multifamily housing. Life science is one where we were really an early mover in the space. So we kind of saw the big picture trends um, and acquired our first life science asset back in 2012 and have built up a portfolio now uh, as a firm of almost 3 billion in assets under management in the sector. Uh, so similar story here, we sort of attribute our success as a firm to our investment research team the ones who are really tracking these high-level thematic trends. So they saw the high-level trends of an aging population, a ton of venture capital pouring money into the space. Um, and when you sort of take a step back and think about things from a practical perspective, all this really makes sense, right? Again, this comes back to the element of human behavior. What are people spending time on, spending money on, et cetera? And people are more and more focused on healthcare these days. They want to live longer. They want to live healthier. Uh, they're super focused on disease prevention, et cetera. Um, so we saw those trends. We're early movers in the space. And then what we saw during COVID is that, you know, COVID didn't really create anything that we hadn't seen. It really just accelerated a lot of the trends that we were already tracking. Um, and so, you know, COVID, I think, really brought to light things like the need for antiviral drugs and vaccines to fight uh, the disease. I think another thing it, it brought to light was really the resiliency of the, the life science sector. So uh, life, our life science assets have really proven to be pretty COVID slash pandemic proof, similar to our warehouses. During COVID, warehouse workers had to show up to their jobs physically every day. Uh, lab workers, so the scientists and research and developers had to show up to their lab space and conduct their experiments and the research and development in their physical lab space every day. Um, so we like it much more than sort of your traditional office uh, sector for a lot of those reasons. Um, and what you'll notice, I think, with the different high conviction sectors, industrial warehouse, multifamily housing, and life sciences, um, what we really like about uh, all of those sectors, in addition to what I talked about, is uh, really that resiliency factor and their ability to perform throughout different cycles. So you mentioned the office sector. Maybe that's a good segue then to talk a little bit about the, the sectors that you're not as enthusiastic about. I mean, the fund does have some exposure to office and retail, um, but those are not your high conviction sectors. So Talk a bit about office and where you are seeing opportunity and what you're avoiding, and then we can chat a bit about retail. 
Sure. Uh, so we are very cautious on office today, as is most of the, you know, not just real estate industry, but I think most of the world. Um, and we don't plan on adding any office to the portfolio anytime in the near future. Um, you know, there's still a lot of uncertainty around work from home, how many days a week workers will come into the office, will be required to come into the office over the longer term. Uh, and that makes leasing decisions really difficult for a lot of companies, right? So they're hesitant to lease, to lease space right now. Uh, and we're seeing vacancies in most major cities, the highest we've ever seen, really highest I've ever seen in my career. Um, office, traditional office is also a very capital intensive sector. So every time one of your tenants rolls, you as the owner need to budget a ton of capital to release that space. And that's in the form of tenant improvements and leasing costs. So we as a firm have been underweighting the traditional office sector and really shifting that focus away from office and more towards our high conviction, our high conviction sectors that we just spoke about. Um, and you bring up a good point. We do own uh, a bit of office in the CPREX portfolio. I want to point out, though, the minimal office that we do own in the portfolio is not your sort of traditional commodity high-rise office in major urban areas, which is really what's all over the news right now, you know, not, not positive news. Um, and we really only have two office investments currently in the portfolio, and they are much more of the flex creative type of offices, not your, again, commodity high rise, which is where all the negative press is today. Um, for example, we own one office, uh, creative office building in Nashville, uh, which has been one of the leaders in terms of jobs, uh, job and population growth. Um, and this particular office asset, the two major tenants, good example of, of tenants that really need to use the office space. Uh, so one is a defense contractor who has proprietary hardware and software on site that their employees need to come to the office to use um, every day. And the other is a music agency. Uh, and they happen to work with some of the world, some of the U.S.'s, I would say, biggest names in music. Um, and they need space for their clients. Uh, they actually hold a ton of events in their space all the time. Uh, so those are, you know, examples of where the tenants physically need to be in the office. Um, and while we're not planning to add any more office in the near future, this is the type of office that we do feel comfortable owning in our current portfolio. So earlier you mentioned, you know, warehouses and the sort of strong trend of e-commerce. So I'm wondering about retail. I know the fund owns a little bit in retail, but, you know, are people still shopping in malls or where are they shopping? What do you own and why? Sure. So retail, we are very selective about the type of retail that we will invest in. Um, we certainly do not own any malls in our portfolio. I think mall, more of the traditional enclosed malls have been going through uh, a pretty difficult time over the last several years. And I think we'll likely continue, we'll likely continue to see that. Um, in our current portfolio, we also have pretty limited exposure to retail. Um, and the type of retail we tend to focus on is really your necessity retail. So again, not your sort of traditional malls and not your you know, outlet centers, power centers, et cetera, but think more of your grocery anchored centers or pharmacy anchored centers, um, the centers that really draw strong demand no matter what type of cycle you're in. 
Uh, so for example, we have uh, a debt investment. So it's a MES loan on a Walmart anchored center in Austin. So a market that we you know, really love has really strong demographics and the center has really strong sales. The Walmart actually has, it's, it's one of the large Walmart formats that has a grocery store inside as well. So that sort of demand is there year round. Um, and really that's the type of necessity anchored center um, in a strong dynamic market that's the type uh, of retail that we would look to potentially continue invest in in the future. I want to get to some of the audience questions, uh, but before I do, just very briefly, you know, later this afternoon, the Fed is expected to raise its key rate for the 11th time since March 2022 to its highest point in 22 years. So I'm wondering, can you talk just very briefly about what that means for the fund in terms of perhaps uh, private real estate lending? Absolutely. Um, so I think our fund is very well positioned for a continued elevated interest rate environment. Uh, we've strategically been keeping our leverage on the low side as interest rates continue to rise last year into this year, uh, and debt capital markets have continued to be volatile. Um, as interest rates rose last year and borrowing became more expensive, we strategically lowered our leverage levels at the portfolio level and borrowed less. And as lending became more lucrative, we started lending more. Um, so we think we're in a pretty good position to weather further interest rate increases. We continue to be very active on the private lending side. Uh, as you mentioned, Lauren, we continue to like this investment profile um, with its strong risk-adjusted returns comprised mostly of current income uh, and its relatively low risk. So you have downside protection as your equity is in the first loss position. Um, and we obviously like the investment profile as, inter as interest rates uh, remain at elevated levels. Um, as an example, our last few mezzanine loan deals that we closed on were receiving a low double digit yield uh, on those investments. And we'll continue to balance these debt investments that take advantage of high interest rates and give us some great income yield with equity investments where we tend to get more of our long-term growth from. Great. Thanks, Diana. We're going to go to some audience questions now. Uh, before I do, actually, Diane asked, please, to spell out the ticker. So let me do that quickly. So it's CPREX. So it's uh, C as in Charlie, P as in Papa, R as in Romeo, E as in Echo, X as an X-ray. And I have to confess, I had to quickly Google what the what the aviation language is because I couldn't quite remember all, the, all those letters. So again, C-P-R-E-X. All right, so Angela asks, what are some mistakes that investors make when investing in real estate? Sure, great question. Um, so I think one mistake that investors probably tend to make is trying to time the market you know, too specifically, um, none of us have exact insight into what the economic environment and therefore real estate pricing will look like tomorrow or next year for that matter. Um, but we believe in the long-term fundamentals of private real estate for, you know, all the reasons that we spoke about earlier. It increases your returns and lowers your risk compared to a traditional stock bond portfolio. You get strong income. Uh, it's a good inflation hedge that has low correlation to other asset classes and offers you strong diversification for your portfolio. Um, and, you know, I think 
there may be some ups and downs in the near term and really over the long term as well. But we believe if you're investing in high quality core income producing real estate over the long term, um, you'll be looking at that high single digit return range uh, that we're that we're aiming for. I'd say maybe another mistake that investors tend to make is maybe just jumping into real estate, either thinking that they can do it on their own or partnering with the wrong manager. Um, I'd say having the right manager who has the extensive expertise through market cycles and with different property types is key, especially in today's uncertain environment. Uh, So partnering with the right manager that has the right resources, knows how to invest in the right sectors, um, and, you know, is really thorough in terms of underwriting and due diligence investments on behalf of their investors, I think is really important, especially today. Now, Carly asks, uh, do you have any news or advice on how or when residential real estate inventory will increase, uh, in her case, particularly on the East Coast? That is a great question, and I wish I had a better answer for you here. Unfortunately, I don't necessarily have a a super exact answer for you. I I can sort of broadly speak about it, though. Um, And I think it's a great question and issue that we all need to talk more about because there is this massive undersupply of residential inventory in the U.S. right now. Um, again, we're estimating three to five million units of, of housing shortage right now. Um, and that's currently being exacerbated with the Fed continuing its interest rate increases. Um, and that really just makes it more difficult for developers to start new residential projects. So I think to address your question high level, I think once interest rates even out and probably start to come down, Uh, In the next year or so, hopefully not in the too distant future, um, we'll start to see some of that much needed supply continue to get built and really make its way into the system. Um, Today, that's not happening and it's really difficult. You know, we're we have our, um, you know, we have our hands in most of the major markets right now and we have asset managers that are boots on the ground know exactly what the development pipeline looks like. Um, So it's not happening today. There's a lot of projects that have actually been put on hold because developers can't find construction financing and they can't therefore make the projects that they were planning on starting in the near future work. Um, So a lot of projects have been been put on pause for us as residential owners of residential real estate, that actually is a good thing. Um, But in terms of the housing shortage and the much needed housing supply, I think once the Fed stops raising interest rates and hopefully starts cutting interest rates, I think you'll see some of that much needed supply come back into the system. Great. Now, we have quite a few more questions, and I apologize to the audience if I, I don't have a chance to get to your question because, because we're almost out of time. But uh, one more uh, before we, we wrap up. Uh, Michael asks, I guess, about three different areas, and you might have addressed one. Uh, one was medical facilities, and that might have, you know, fall under life sciences, public storage spaces. And he says, what about cell towers? Yeah, so all great questions here. Cell towers, I would actually put more typically into the category of falling under infrastructure versus 
specifically under private real estate. So not necessarily something that we as a firm um, specialize in. Um, Self-storage, we have had some experience as a firm. Um, I think, you know, similar to multifamily housing, there's a lot of high level demographic trends that we're tracking um, that do bode well for self-storage. Um, and that is something that we may continue to pursue uh, both as a firm and then specifically for the CP Rex portfolio. Um, so that is something I would say, keep your you know eyes and ears peeled for. It is something that we are quite actively looking at. We don't necessarily have in our portfolio today, um, but we are quite bullish on. Um, and then medical office um, is a little bit of a different category than life sciences. So medical office typically tends to be more sort of traditional office space, but lease to tenants that have a medical focus, right? Whereas life sciences typically is a mixture of more traditional office, but really what makes something a life science asset is the presence of lab space and research and development space there. So medical office is a little bit of a different um, animal. It is similarly one that we do have some experience in as a firm. And I think similar to life sciences, as we sort of talked about all of the high level trends of what's going on in healthcare, venture capital funding, people caring more and more about, you know, living healthier and longer lives. Um, you know, the bigger picture trends, I think, support investment in medical uh, office space. So not something that we are super active in, uh, nor do we have any existing uh, medical office in the fund currently, but something that we are potentially assessing. Great. Thank you so much, Jenna. It's been a really fascinating discussion and we'll have to leave it there. Thank you for joining me today. And thank you also to the audience for tuning in. We hope you can join us again tomorrow. Barron's Deputy Editor, Alex Yule, and Associate Editor for Technology, Eric Sabitz, will discuss the outlook for tech companies and individual stocks. Thank you for listening as always. Be well and have a wonderful day. The energy transition is a long and winding road and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.